and welcome to the Navigating Childhood Cancer podcast. In this podcast, we explore all aspects of a child's cancer diagnosis. We'll speak with parents, experts, caregivers, and maybe even the children themselves to understand the issues, the risks, the struggles, and the triumphs. My name is Heather, and this is the information I wish I had when my child was diagnosed with leukemia. Thank you for being here. And welcome to episode six. Today I'm going to talk about a situation that can happen when a child has leukemia, and that is what happens when a child in treatment gets a fever. So I'll start by saying that I am not a medical professional, nor am I qualified to speak about this medical condition. The purpose of this episode is to talk in general terms about our experience as a family what it was like for us to encounter this condition, and how we responded. If your child is in treatment for cancer, please always follow the advice and direction of your child's medical team. If there is anything here that conflicts with what you've been told, please always defer to your own doctor. And if you suspect that your child may be getting a fever, please follow the instructions provided by your team, reach out to your contact nurse or your emergency contact, or proceed directly to the hospital. Fevers are a very real part of life for a child with leukemia. Persistent fevers can be a symptom of illness and is actually a very common symptom of leukemia, among others. So if you have a child who's been diagnosed with leukemia, chances are you have some experience with fevers. Putting it simply, Leukemia is cancer of the blood cells, which are created in the bone marrow. Healthy blood cells are required to deliver oxygen to the body, to heal injury, and to fight infection. The presence of cancer cells can make it difficult for the bone marrow to produce healthy blood, including the white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. So a patient may have certain symptoms that indicate that they are low in certain blood cells. Blood work is done to determine levels of blood cells or counts, and a test is done on a sample of the bone marrow to determine whether a patient has leukemia and is therefore in this compromised condition of having low blood counts. Add to this the fact that a child who's being treated for leukemia with chemotherapy will also have low blood cell counts for a time. The goal of treatment is to eliminate the cancer cells so that the bone marrow can return to making healthy blood cells. With time, the blood counts will recover, but until then, while treatment is underway, blood counts will be low. In particular, the blood cells that are required to fight infection are called neutrophils, which are a type of white blood cell. When a child has low neutrophil counts, it is called neutropenia. This means that their body is unable or less able to fight infection or disease their immune system is compromised or suppressed, and a child with neutropenia is considered neutropenic. If a child who is neutropenic gets a fever, it is a problem because a fever is the body's natural response to a virus or infection. When we're healthy and we get a fever, it is generally an indication that our body's immune system is working hard to fight an infection that can be caused by a virus or bacteria. But when a child who is neutropenic gets a fever, well, it's actually an emergency. 
that child might not be able to fight the infection that is causing the fever. If it is not treated immediately, it can become serious or even life-threatening. So it needs to be treated as a medical emergency. This is true at all stages of treatment, but especially in the early days when treatment is so intense. The patient needs to begin a dose of antibiotics as soon as possible to help fight whatever is causing the fever. The child also needs to be monitored until it is clear that the situation has been resolved. We were advised at the beginning of treatment that it was likely that our child would get a fever at some point, and we were given very clear instructions for what to do in that scenario. I'm not going to quote the temperature that is considered a fever or the temperature at which you need to react because it's important to follow the specific instructions that are provided to you by your care team. If you don't know what that temperature is for your child, please reach out to your team to confirm it. We had it written on a card, which we have carried in our wallets since the first day of treatment. So knowing that a fever is likely means two things. First, we as parents need to continually monitor our child's well-being, including taking their temperature whenever there's an indication that the child is unwell. And second, we need to drop everything and respond when we discover a fever. This means moving quickly to get to the hospital. Let's start with the child feeling unwell. Now, it's hard to tell whether this is just the child not feeling well because of treatment. During treatment, the child generally doesn't feel well a lot of the time. But when a fever is starting to come on, in our case, our child could tell us that something was different. My child started feeling lethargic, a loss of appetite, chills, and skin that was warm to the touch. The first thing we did once we discovered that a fever might be building was to start recording the time and the temperature. This would allow us to fully answer the questions of our care team if we were required to go to the hospital, including what time did you first notice that there was a fever? And we continued to take the temperature regularly. If we hadn't reached that temperature threshold identified by the hospital, but the temperature was rising, we might take the temperature every half hour. For me, once I started to discover a rising temperature, I started taking temperatures as frequently as every 15 minutes. The next step is to call the hospital. We were given the number of our contact nurse, who we could call with questions or concerns at any time, as well as an after-hours number to reach an oncology fellow, and one was on call at all times. This allowed us to convey our situation and to get some direction from them about whether or when it was time to get to the hospital. I note that every time we did call the hospital to let them know of a fever, we were advised to come in. I have a note on my phone of all the things that I need to grab quickly if we have to race to the hospital unexpectedly. For me, it includes my phone and a charger, my computer and a charger, some water, and a toothbrush, one for each of us, so that we will be prepared if we need to spend the night or a few nights in hospital. We also packed up our kit of medications so that we could be prepared to give meds at the scheduled time. Although in most cases, once we were admitted to the hospital, they assumed responsibility for the medications 
and advised us on when it was time to take them. And this was also considering what was happening with the treatment that was being given to treat the fever when we were in hospital. So it was just important to know what was scheduled so that we could discuss any variations with the team and to update our calendar accordingly. In our case, the first fever we encountered was a little under four weeks into treatment during the induction phase. It was a beautiful summer day and we were at home and I had been invited to a friend's house to visit and for a swim. It was the first time that I had left my child's side since the diagnosis. So to go spend a couple of hours with a friend was welcome to me. As I've mentioned before, I have been so grateful to the people who were looking out for me at that time and anticipating that maybe I needed a break. So I let my guard down a little and I figured it was okay to go out for a short time. Well, I had barely started to relax when I got the call from home that my child's temperature was rising. So I packed up and raced home and gathered our things and raced with my child to the hospital. We had also called ahead to confirm that the fever had reached the threshold we were provided and we were instructed to go directly to the ER. When we arrived at the hospital, they were ready for us. We were swept directly into a room and a nurse who was trained to oversee the situation was with us immediately to start taking action. I have never seen someone work that fast. She was typing on the computer, getting things ready, taking vitals, and my child was hooked up to an IV remarkably quickly so that the antibiotics could begin. A number of tests were also given to try to determine the source of the fever, including a COVID test. That first time, my child basically slept on the bed in the ER for the first few hours. While me? Well, I could not stop crying. <laughs> we had been told that this was a likely occurrence, and we were watching for it, and we were prepared to get to the hospital quickly. But when it actually started to happen, when that thermometer indicated that that fever had been reached, and we began taking action in an actual emergency situation, it seemed awful and real. The stress of it, while trying to remain calm for the benefit of my child, was overwhelming. And for me, my stress response was tears hot tears that I just could not stop. That night, <laughs> my mask was soaked. There were also tears of gratitude. Gratitude for the nurse who was working so quickly to respond to my child's emergency, and gratitude for the oncology fellow who visited us in the ER late that night to let us know what was happening and to update us on the results of the various tests. I also felt a little badly about the other families who were sitting in the ER waiting room that night. We were swept past all those other families and placed into a room so that treatment could begin immediately. I mentioned this to the nurse, who reminded me that in the ER, they triage all the cases and treat the most pressing issues first. So this was a reminder to me of how much of an emergency this situation can be. For me, I think there was also a lot of relief that we were back in the fold of the hospital, where the team knows my child's case and they know how to handle the situation. I trust the hospital so completely and they demonstrated their commitment to our child's health time and time again. So I always felt good when I was there, in their care. 
I don't know about you, but coming down from a stressful event like that often involves some tears. So if the fever spiked at about 6 p.m. that day, by midnight things were stable and the fever was starting to come down. It was about this time that I was also starting to calm down. My child spent two nights in hospital that time, needing to be monitored for 48 hours before we could go home. After the first night, we were transferred out of the ER and onto the oncology floor. I believe it was because we were in such a critical stage of treatment. Frankly, I wasn't unhappy to be there again and to know that things were being monitored. When I look back at photos from that incident, I'm reminded that my child slept most of the time while I waited apprehensively nearby. My partner came in to stay with our child for the second night, as this was during COVID, where we were allowed only one caregiver in the room at a time. Plus, we had other children at home who needed to be supervised. Following the drama of the first night, it was an uneventful stay, and of course, it was a relief to get home once it was all over. Now, because of the need to get to the hospital so quickly after a fever happens, it means that we were advised not to travel too far from home for those first few months. If we were hoping to leave town for a weekend, we were asked to notify the hospital so that they could be prepared to refer us to one of the other satellite hospitals in the event of another fever. In the first few weeks, I was completely happy to stay close to home. We were visiting the hospital for check-ins every few days anyways, so we really weren't in a position to go anywhere. But after a few months, we decided we were ready to venture out and wanted to take a trip up north to visit a cottage over a long weekend. We notified the hospital and we determined the closest satellite hospital should we need it and packed up for a few well-deserved nights away. The first night went well, and I enjoyed waking up in a new environment out in the country on that first day. However, at about 11 a.m., my child started feeling unwell. We started logging the temperature, and by noon, we were packing up and preparing to make the trip to the satellite hospital with a fever. Oh boy, that was not a fun day. First, the satellite hospital was not as close as we had expected. It was a slower drive given the winding country roads and that drive felt like it took hours. Although we had been in touch with our care team, who had contacted the satellite hospital to let them know we were coming, the communication was not quite as seamless as it was during our first experience with a fever when we were swept in and treated immediately. I note that this was also during the summer of 2021, when we were in the height of COVID, so of course the hospital staff was very focused on completing the COVID screening before speaking with us, especially because we were presenting a child with a fever. Let's just say that it was a very tense time until someone listened to what I was trying to say. My child does not have COVID. My child is receiving treatment for leukemia. My child is neutropenic and has a fever. Please, this is an emergency. Nobody was responding with as much urgency as they had that first night at SickKids, and I couldn't understand why. Well, despite the slow start to that visit, we were handled with care until ultimately my child was transferred back to SickKids via ambulance, again because we needed to be monitored for another 48 hours. The net result of this situation was that we decided not to chance things by going to a satellite hospital again. 
I mean no disrespect to those healthcare professionals. It was simply not a team who was familiar with our situation, and it was too stressful to be trying to explain our unique situation to someone who was simply trying to follow their own protocols in their own hospital. It is for this reason that we have also chosen not to travel while our child remains in treatment. It was one thing to require care at a different hospital that was just two hours from home. It would be something completely different to be requiring care out of the country or in a location from which we could not return quite so quickly. And I haven't looked into it, but I don't expect that it would be easy to get health insurance for a trip like that. So, until treatment ends, we'll be here, close to home, making the most of what our city and our province has to offer, and enjoying every single minute of it, given that it means our child is going to be close to the team and to the care that is so critical to healing. My child has had two more fevers over the following two years, for a total of four. After those first two experiences, they were no longer quite as dramatic. Both the recent fevers happened during the maintenance phase of treatment, so while my child is still considered immunocompromised and neutropenic, and while the protocol still needs to be followed, my child was not hospitalized for quite as long, and the last time it happened, which was actually just a couple weeks ago, we were in hospital and home again in the same night. So based on these experiences, I'd just like to share with you what I've learned about handling fevers during treatment. And the first thing is to know your numbers. Know what temperature is considered a fever and at what point you should call the hospital and when you should drop everything in order to get your child to the hospital. Number two, know that a fever can happen at any time. Remain diligent and pay close attention to your child's symptoms. If your child is old enough to tell you how they're feeling, encourage them to let you know if they're ever not feeling well. It never hurts to take a child's temperature, so just keep a thermometer or two with you at all times so that you can be prepared if your child starts to feel unwell or is warm to the touch. Number three, never hesitate to reach out to your team. If you're unsure, call. If you see that the temperature is rising, call. If you have other symptoms, but the temperature doesn't appear to be rising, still call. They are there to support you and advise you on how to respond, and it is always helpful to have the input of the professionals during an emergency. Number four, have a backup plan in place. When you have to drop everything to get to the hospital, you are going to need help with your other children, or pets, or work, or whatever else is happening in your life. You might need to ask for a ride, or a place to stay, or for someone to help you with whatever's happening at home. So it's a good idea to have this lined up in advance so that when the fever hits, you're ready and you don't have to start calling around looking for help. Number five, keep a packing list handy. Be ready to pack up in a matter of minutes so that you can be out the door with everything that you might need for a two to three night stay at the hospital. Number six, don't let your guard down. When my child entered the maintenance phase, we mistakenly believed that the fevers were a thing of the past. The likelihood was smaller, but they still could happen. And given that there have been two fevers since entering the maintenance phase, it is true that it truly can happen at any time. Number seven, act quickly. Just move. I'm not trying to be dramatic. 
just encourage you to treat it like the emergency that it is and get hopping. And finally, number eight, try not to panic. Remember that you've got this. It is simply the reality of our lives right now. We have to be ready to act on a moment's notice, and it is stressful, but we can do this. All we have to do is to get our children to the hospital so that the professionals can do their part. We can never anticipate what it will be like to be in this situation, but once we're in it, it's incredible what we can do, especially when our child's health is on the line. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more, you can find us online at navigatingchildhoodcancer.com and on social media at at nccpodcast. If you and your family are on this journey, I am so sorry. I hope that you'll stay to listen and that you find something valuable here. If you'd like to share your perspective, please reach out. If you know someone whose child is living through a cancer diagnosis, I also invite you to stick around and to share this podcast with your community. Truly, we can only get through this together.